The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello, good morning. Welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. Another one bites the dust to credit Swiss chairman Antonio Horto Osario resigns after breaching COVID rules on multiple occasions with former UBS Group COO Axel Lehman announced as his successor. Acquisition denied, GSK rejects a £50 billion offer from Unilever for its consumer unit and reiterates its commitment to spin off the business amid activist pressure to consider a sale. China's economy grows at 8% in 2021. That's well ahead of government targets. But expansion slows to an 18-month low, while the PBOC cuts a key loan rate in a bid to support economic activity. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson faces a key week amid the fallout from a series of lockdown gatherings. Opposition leader Keir Starmer says there needs to be a change at the top. We've got a Prime Minister um, who has lost the moral authority to lead. And just, just when you need, because we're not out of the pandemic, a government that has that moral authority to lead, we've lost it with this Prime Minister. Big corporate story unfolding today as Credit Suisse Chairman Antonio Horta Osario has resigned just nine months into the role after an internal investigation found he breached coronavirus rules more than once. Horta Osario left quarantine in London to watch tennis at Wimbledon in July 2021 and a few months later broke Swiss rules when he flew in and out of the country within three days. Credit Suisse has named board member Axel Lehman as Horta Osario's replacement effective immediately and Jeff we have followed this story enough a series of problems that we have witnessed at the corporate they've been trying to clean up their act effectively we know that the focus of the bank in the last 12 months or so has really been to step away from scandals trying to reduce risk in the business after the green silk credit issue there was a big tuna fishing problem in Mozambique, uh, the issues around the spying scandal that date back, of course, to Tijan Tiam, the old CEO, and Arkegos, a, a series of problems. And here we have yet another issue. So I'd, fair to say the risk tolerance at the bank was very, very low at this point, and the board took a very strong position to effectively cut Otto Osario here, but uh, let's just talk about form as well. Uh, this is a man that came on board. He had a very strong track record at Lloyd's, effectively turning the bank around over the stretch of uh, more than a decade. And uh, he was seen as uh, somewhat of a, a very strong uh, CEO in the banking circles. But that said, he was not scandal-free either. There were a couple of issues over his tenure, one, of course, being an affair in Singapore, which does beg the question of a judgment. So I think what we're seeing here, very disappointing news flow again for credit. Swiss and doesn't help them escape some of the concerns that the market may have about judgment, about scandal at the banks. So I think uh, it'll be fascinating to see today 
what happens with the share price. Another point now, and you may recall that uh, there was a conversation that the market had back when Horto Osorio had taken uh, the top job and was touted as the uh, chairman of the group, that perhaps there would be maybe leadership change, which does beg the question with uh, a man that's come on board from UBS, uh, a bank that has a very strong track record, whether he does try to have some form of uh, role in terms of decision-making over at Credit Suisse on the executive level. So that is something we're watching. Thomas Gottstein, of course, uh, the CEO of Credit Suisse, and he has been charged with this turner at the bank. Let's just see what the new or incoming chairman, and there is a couple months to play for here, as, of course, as shareholders get to have a say as well. So we're waiting to see what the outcome will be from shareholders. Well, let's uh, move on and talk about GSK Unilever, another big story we're watching this morning. GlaxoSmithKline says it has rejected a £50 billion offer from Unilever for its consumer health business it received at the end of last year. Reports suggest that Unilever is weighing an increased offer and has held talks with lenders about additional funding. According to the Financial Times, GSK and Pfizer, the group's minority stakeholder, are holding out for an offer in excess of £60 billion. In a statement, GSK said Unilever's initial offer, quote, fundamentally undervalued its consumer health business and its future prospects. The UK pharma group says it intends to go ahead with the prospective spin-off slated for the middle of this year. And Jeff, I'll get you to weigh in on this one. We uh, now have you good on, on comms this morning. What do you make of this? Uh, I mean, we're watching a, uh, an IPO. There haven't been a lot of huge IPOs at that, this stage this year, but it does seem like a choppy market to come to with a spin-off versus, say, a sale of an asset that might guarantee a price for shareholders. Yeah, no, I think it's a fascinating story, Karen, and it's interesting that, that it's emerged uh, so early on into the new year because I think a lot of people were looking at uh, GSK in this business and thinking uh, some sort of uh, shake-up long overdue and we know the activists have been on the case Elliot, Bluebell, Funsmith all making their various points about how they'd like to see some restructuring and some recognition perhaps of uh, value buried in the business here so the question really it just seems to be at this point is what is the right price uh, for this business and uh, I guess we're getting some sense with this bid from Unilever but um, you know as we as we discussed with the uh, Novak Djokovic case um, you may have uh, a, f- a few early engagements that appear to set the tone but on a five setter you've got a lot longer to go and I suspect that we uh, still have quite a, f- a few more uh, moves to take place in this uh, battle for the consumer healthcare business um, and 50 billion clearly doesn't seal it at this stage. I think one of the other points here, again, as you talk about tennis uh, comparisons, you have two very interesting players, both effectively under fire over at GSKM as Wormsley over her uh, credentials, whether she's the right person to be leading the company and also uh, the right person to be self steering or being in charge of this spin-off business that we're waiting for a name of. The other point, I mean, we were watching Unilever last week. Alan Jope was being heavily criticised, mocked by some fund managers over embracing ESG credentials, perhaps going too far at the expense of performance of the company. So it does feel as though one of the CEOs needs to get a deal right here at this point. So I think that does make for challenging dynamics. Uh, The other point is that uh, the process to a sale, Jeff, as we talk about what is the right price here, perhaps we can see Unilever, if it did 
purchased this for more than it had intended maybe can sell parts of the business. And we know there's a lot of that going on. If you buy a large asset, you don't have to swallow it in whole. You can effectively sell off parts of that business and uh, sell it to other interested buyers who are looking to bulk up in various parts. So perhaps that is something to watch. There could be a series of deals effectively. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to keep an eye on this. I mean, there are clearly some gilt edged um, businesses and brands within this operation. Very well known, very well respected. Sensodyne, of course, uh, Panadol, uh, Tribune. All, all of these are major household names and very attractive to an acquirer at this stage. Um, I think the uh, question for me is is what will this leave um, Glaxo uh, SmithKline um, attractive for? And, um, you know, we know that there is a, a reshaping of this uh, business going on. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, uh, carving out of this uh, consumer healthcare business. But we know GSK has got some broader issues. And the fact that it um, didn't participate in the creation of, of its own COVID vaccine, uh, didn't bring a product to market that the market was um, uh, satisfied with, uh, has been seen as a, a significant uh, black mark against the business. Um, we just have to wait and watch on this one, Karen. Clearly, uh, this is an early engagement and there will be uh, further rounds. Um, but it's just, I think, again, just to point out, it's a big deal being talked about very early on in a year where most of the noise so far has been about the shift in um, interest rate expectations and what damage that might ultimately do on uh, things like corporate M&A through the rest of this year as monetary conditions tighten. And this is a shot across the bowels. Perhaps it suggests that CEOs are quite comfortable with the narrative around shifting uh, cost of money. And actually, we might have um, in prospect another strong year of M&A as, as uh, companies try and get themselves a little more streamlined for what could be a, a choppy year for uh, share prices. A lot of big issues on the macro level, but I think also the corporate side, and you mentioned uh, key CEOs and players here. I think what's fascinating around this GSK spin-off is that Dave Lewis has been brought in as the chairman and uh, will have a, a major role here. And this is a man that had worked for three decades over at Unilever. So will he be friend or foe for Unilever in this process? If Unilever does want to press ahead, that does give him valuable information about the, how, how the company would think and how it would uh, proceed strategically, perhaps. So I think that'll be a, a fascinating point as we watch this process play out. But let's push on and uh, we are going to tell you what's coming up. Uh, we'll have much more on the prospective mega merger throughout the morning. We'll be speaking to Marco Tarico, who is partner in Bluebell Capital Partners. That's an activist shareholder in GSK. Don't miss that interview at 9.15 CET. Now, U.S. banks fell in Friday's trade with Wells Fargo bucking the trend on the back of a quarterly profit beat as more customers take loans and the bank slashes spending. Bigger pay packets drove J.P. Morgan's non-interest expenses up 11% as fourth quarter profits slid 14%. Citi also fell following a 26% slide in quarterly profit amid weakness in its consumer banking unit. Goldman, Bank of America and Morgan Stanley are set to report later this week. And you can see it really was just Wells eking out again there at 3.6%. 
Let's take you back to those U.S. markets. We did see a mixed pattern Friday trade. Dow pulling back down about half of a percent in contrast to gains for the S&P and the Nasdaq. But worth noting, all major indices were weaker by the end of the trading week. So it was a cautious old pattern. We saw a lot of the sectors actually falling over the trade. So it does hint to some of the volatility still around these interest rate concerns. We pressed the pause button today, though, as we waited out for markets resumed tomorrow. It is Martin Luther King Junior Day, so equities and bonds not trading stateside. And that uh, is going to be an interesting one for markets elsewhere that have been taking a lot of their cues from this Wall Street trade. In terms of treasuries, here's how we finished uh, 1.79 on the trade. So just off that high water 1.8 level, investors again leading into a lot of those hawkish messages last week from Fed speakers. Actually, we get a little bit of reprieve this week. We don't have uh, Fed speakers as they waited out for their next monetary policy meeting. So I think investors will be digesting a lot of what they've already had from these speakers. And uh, let me take you to the dollar. We have seen a slight regrouping on dollar versus the Japanese yen, 114.45 this morning. That's marched up two tenths of a percent. Not a huge amount of movement on some of these other trades from sterling and euro, where we are seeing both of those trying to recover some territory versus the greenback, dollar weaker versus the yuan. We've seen intervention in the Chinese market today by the PBOC on lending rates. And you can see dollar just slipping a little bit versus the Chinese currency. Coming up on the show, COVID lockdowns and a curling property market prompt China's central bank to cut its key lending rate even as the economy expands 4% in the fourth quarter. Could more stimulus be on the way? We'll have details next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get into the Chinese GDP data. The economy grew faster than expected in the final quarter of last year, expanding 4%. That was a beat on expectations, but it's still the weakest pace in 18 months. Industrial output was a bright spot, growing 4.3% in December, up from 3.8% in November, while retail sales came in weaker than expected. Weak consumption and cooling property market prices prompted China's central bank to cut a key loan rate in a bid to support economic activity. Well, let's pull the threads together here and get some explanation as to uh, why we had uh, some weakness on the consumer side here. Um, Let's bring Sam into the conversation. And I guess, uh, Sam, there is obviously Omicron that we can point to at this stage. But Given the zero COVID policy uh, China has taken, um, does that really explain this uh, broad brush consumer level retail sales weakness? 
Good morning to you, Jeff. It certainly is one of the reasons behind that, the fear factor around the Omicron variant now and this zero COVID approach that the government is maintaining that has led to these very strict lockdowns, particularly we saw uh, in December in places like uh, Tianjin and also Xi'an. And so that is why we did see this mixed bag of data out of China today as you painted the picture of really telling us that we are still looking at an uneven recovery in the world's second biggest economy. Of course, as you pointed out, we did see China cutting two uh, sets of rates today to soften the blow from this slowing data. We did see that GDP uh, doing better than expected, but really the weak consumption to round out the year is building the case for more easing now. And it really uh, does make you wonder about this structural transition to a consumption-led recovery and economy. This is a really going to be a big challenge for authorities. That GDP for the year coming in up 8.1% year on year above expectations and well believe, uh, above that uh, at least 6% that the government uh, was targeting. But uh, really, uh, the slowdown was visible in Q4 with that uh, 4% year on year rise. Of course, that was uh, better than expected. But as you pointed out, the slowest pace in one and a half years that came amid the downturn in the property sector and also uh, amid these uh, lockdowns as a result of these COVID cases, amid this zero COVID approach, the uh, trio of economic data really underscored that consumption. Uh, Certainly was the uh, clear pocket of weakness. Uh, The retail sales growing only 1.7% year on year. A really big miss from that 3.7% that the market was looking for. I mean, uh, you know, we are used to seeing uh, retail sales up around 8% on average year on year. So uh, really, economists are saying that uh, we need to see uh, more support, certainly for uh, the consumers. And so uh, certainly this uh, cut to the medium term lending facility today uh, has led to some expectations that we will see more easing from the the PBOC, the central bank. Guys, back to you in London. All right. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Sam, for that. Let's bring in uh, Helena Huang then, the China economist at ICBC Standard Bank. Um, Helena, good to have you with us. I mean, given that the official statistics uh, suggest a very low uh, morbidity rate and relatively few infections, it's surprising how weak consumer spending appears to be in China at this stage? Or or should we question the official statistics on COVID? Yeah, good morning. Pleasure to join you today. Um, So I think, uh, overall speaking, indeed, the December figure, as far as retail sales is concerned, it is quite weak, uh, as we've already seen from the headline data. But at the same time, it's also worth noting that the investment itself in December, momentum will also sort of on the weak side as we see nearly um, flat growth of the investment towards the year end. So that explains a lot of the rationale um, for Beijing to consider rolling out more of the policy support, not only just to tackle the immediate, you know, weakness from both consumption as well as investment, but also trying to, you know, uh, roll out preemptive um, measures so that the Q1 growth, or perhaps the first first half of this year's growth can get some support from early policy sort of support, both from PBOC as well as potentially from the Minister of Finance um, when it comes to the fiscal front. So uh, that's quite crucial as uh, if we um, think about what happened last year. Um, Last year, in particular, the first quarter or first half of the year benefited hugely from the low base effect. But when it comes to 2022, the stories are different. 
that means we will have a slight, much higher uh, base um, baseline from last year, and that makes you know um, the year-on-year -year growth going forward a bit more uh, difficult to achieve the ideal target if need be. Therefore, that explains a lot of the policy necessity, and um, so that we can going forward in the next three to six months time, we will have a bit more support from the policies of, of front in particular. But eight, 18 months ago, when, when we talked about uh, government policy, it, it was largely about dealing with um, debt concerns, not only within uh, provincial governments, uh, but also at a corporate level. Uh, and much of that focus was about bringing down the levels of debt and discouraging uh, speculative uh, investing that was debt fueled, And yet here we are talking again about easing of monetary conditions. Um, did the PBOC perhaps um, get it wrong in supporting government action around debt management? Um, this seems like something of a reversal. Um, should we see it in that in that light, or is there another way of explaining the easing we're seeing right now? Does the government feel that it has successfully dealt with the debt problem? Yeah, I think you're right. The debt problem, in, including lots of the deleveraging efforts, that is still ongoing, as we've already seen from not only you know pre-pandemic, but also over the last six months. Um, when it comes to real estate sectors, a lot of regulatory um, tightening and scrutinies are taking place to um, urge all of these highly leveraged uh, real estate developers to reduce their debt level and find a way, a more sustainable way um, going forward to do their business. This is still happening. Um, I'm not seeing this to be changed in the, in the, in, in the foreseeable future. When it comes to the PBOC support, I think PBOC has been holding the monetary policy relatively tight over the uh, past one year in particular. It's really, really until the end of last year, since December, that we started to see a bit of the marginal easing coming through from the PBOC. Um, if you take a look at the M2 growth in December, as well as the credit provision in December, there are some early signs confirming that. And today, of course, when and we saw the uh, the one-year MLF rate, and clearly the PBOC is ready to um, showcase more easing buyers to the market, so that at least when it comes to liquidity provision in the interbank system, the confidence and market sentiments can be um, sort of restored in it towards a more healthier way. Um, but uh, when it comes to the overall sort of uh, investment, um, particularly from the government side in terms of the infrastructure investment project, these will still m very much be the focus for the right. first half of 2022. Thanks. H Helena, if I can pick up on one of the stronger undercurrents here, there were concerns coming into 2022 about how bumpy the phase would be for the so-called factory to the world as other supply chains started to improve. But what we have instead had more supply chain issues with Omicron that's impacted other countries that might have been getting back on their feet. How does that impact China throughout the rest of this year? Yeah, I think um, throughout um, 2021 in particular, when it comes to the manufacturing capacity or capability in China, it became quite obvious that China's zero to uh, COVID tolerance policy actually benefited a lot of the manufacturing um, companies. So uh, 
when it when it was in 2020 and the first lockdown China had clearly that has huge disruptions but last year it showcased that the manufacturing sector it is actually a lot more resilient to all these COVID measures in the domestic market are much more resilient than the consumption or the services sectors um, that are facing. Um, what it has actually suffered more was uh, the power crunch that took place back in September, October time. And this, I personally think, it has already been resolved. And it also has already reflected in the December figure that most of the uh, manufacturing activities have already rebounded from the previous dip caused by the uh, power crunch. So that's an encouraging sign to see. And going forward in this year, although there are still some lingering concerns um, about the COVID, either domestically in China or, or, or abroad, uh, I think at least the manufacturing activities, um, the, the reference to that will be relatively lighter than the consumption. Helena, for many international investors, investing in China has been about chasing growth. And one of the big concerns still at this point for a lot of investors is whether the, the country can stabilise around the 5 and 5.5% 5 and growth rate this year. What is the challenge? Do you think authorities can manage that? Yeah, this is uh, also one of the key targets or key aspects we will be closely watching um, in the forthcoming two-session meeting um, due in early March. I think for last year, clearly China did a pretty good job not only achieving you know the minimum 6% growth target, but also in terms of the two-year average, if we compare it with you know, um, um, 2020 and 2029 on average, it did have already... Um, achieve the minimum of 5.1% growth over the past two years. So um, I personally still think this will be a, a sort of a softer target that China is willing to set itself going forward. And um, probably at the forthcoming two session, we will see China still setting itself with a very humble growth target for 2022. But implicitly, there will still be some sort of uh, um, object objective to achieve a, probably around 5% growth over uh, over the past three years on, on average. So I think this is well within what China can achieve um, this year. And with all of the you know preemptive policy measures, we are seeing that China has already started to roll out um, from you know things late last year, and also I, I guess there will be more to come before the Chinese New Year. Um, we will get some sort okay. of support, policy support in particular, for the growth. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.